We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Welcome to Steve Cunningham, SenseOfDelium.us, and the YouTube channel here with Jonathan Arrington, uh, pretty much the most smartest man on the planet. Talk about Latin and Greek. You've probably seen his interviews uh, with Brother Andre and the uh, Latin and Greek lessons that he's posted live stream along with some of the videos from Rome. Thanks be to God for him doing that. Those are really cool. But wanted to bring him on on bring on why Latin, why Greek, kind of like what he was leading up to in the videos for us, uh, putting his Latin Greek classes and everyone was asking in the comments, well, not everybody, but most were, why are these coming up? I don't understand a word he's saying, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I figured we'd have him on and do a why Latin, why learn Latin, why Greek topic. And start off, I wanted to, uh, I saw this the other day, accidentally, if there's such thing as accidents, while my wife was watching The Voice on, uh, Bellman's uh, chapter on, on the vernacular additions and his controversies on the Word of God. Uh, he basically talks about why <laughs> you shouldn't have the common language even in the scriptures. But when people are start like today, I had a guy say they're having a trilingual, Johnny, you ever heard of this? A trilingual mass? Yeah. <laughs> a trilingual mass with, he had four or five languages of music. And I thought this part was interesting. I'll just, I'll, I'll just read it. And there's also in Africa. Oh, yeah. It is also certain in Africa where Christians were that the Latin language only was, only was always used in the public reading of scriptures. For there is no mention by any author of the Punic translation. And St. Augustine in Book 2, Chapter 13, his book on the Christian doctrine, says that at his time the custom was to sing the Psalms in church in Latin. Similarly, St. Cyprian in the Sermon on the Lord's Prayer says that at this time the custom was to sing at Mass the introductory verse, Sorsum Corda. St. Augustine in chapter 13 of his treatise on perseverance says that in the Mass, after the words, Habemus Adomium, immediately was added by the priest, Gracias Agnes Domini Deo Nostro, and a response, Dignum used to Mass. From these facts, it is clearly concluded that in Africa the Mass usually was said in Latin and also the reading of the epistle and the gospel, which belong to the main parts of the Mass. But the same Augustine maintains that at that time, Latin was not the common language in Africa, for at the beginning of this commentary on the letter of the Romans, he says that the word salvation, salus, was also a Punic word, and that the Punic, it means three things. And in the same place, he says that some persons knew Latin and Punic, and that all others knew only Punic, and of those, almost all of them were peasant farmers. Likewise, and he just keeps going on and on. And it's also, he talks about Isidore and St. Cyprian talking about in different areas. Uh, England was another one that was brought up that the common people language was not Latin. So Latin was used at all the, all the masses, all the liturgies, even back in those days. So, Mr. Ari, Jonathan Ayrton, 
Why should we learn Latin and Greek or and or Greek? Well, I'd say first and foremost because they are. It, it's true of them what Chesterton said about languages that uh, you have to die to become immortal. And uh, Chesterton was. I mean, he was referring to the classical languages when he was talking about it. But um, the the deeper sense, I think, of what he was getting at is that. Um, you're able to do something with a so-called dead language that you're not able to do with, you know, vernacular languages or, or really living languages. That is languages in which you're, you're born speaking from basically the womb on. I yes, I'll admit I'm guilty. I speak to my children in Latin and Greek, so it's a little bit different for them maybe than for some kids. But I mean, let's just be honest. You can't move somewhere and fit into a culture where Latin and Greek are there and truly alive. Um, Almost nobody in Vatican City even understands Latin anymore, so you couldn't even do it if you were there. Uh, trust me, I used to work there. But um, the reason to learn them, first and foremost, is that uh, people have been having conversations, you know, literary conversations, written conversations, about the most important things in life, especially the theological, but also the philosophical. So kind of, you know, the, uh, the plain right, the, the handmaid of theology is philosophy. Uh, they've been having these greatest conversations about the most important things in Latin and in Greek continuously for, in Greek, you know, 2,800 years, really, um, even though you could say the cutoff for uh, written Greek, that's the pretty much the same grammar and syntax as Homeric Greek ended a few hundred years ago. Uh, but with Latin, it started a little bit later, but, you know, it, it really continued uh, in large part till the mid part of last century. So you get to enter into a dialogue that's happened in almost every part of the world because the gospel, you know, uh, the originals of the gospels were taken throughout the world. Um, you, you can find old copies of uh, Greek Bibles pretty much all over the world. And um, same thing with Latin. You know, you, you find it everywhere the missionaries went, especially uh, those like the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Dominicans. They took the Latin language with them. And... Uh, Therefore, you can, you can kind of enter into a conversation that's been happening in different places, different times, but for about 2,000 years and pretty much all over the world. So I'd say it's, um, it's important to, uh, for, for anybody to be able to address difficult objections. And those difficult objections are brought up over and over again in Latin and Greek by some of the most brilliant minds that have ever written, Part, partially because they had to, you know, in, for most of them that lived after, uh, let's say, the at the latest, maybe the sixth century, they had to learn these languages in a, a pretty restricted environment. I mean, it wasn't uh, something they, they drank with their mother's milk, so to speak. Uh, so they, they spent a, a long, difficult process trying to learn the language as well, and then talk about these most important things, many of which included a lot of abstract concepts. And they did it in Latin and Greek because there were so many people that had started this conversation, you know, the, the great conversation, as the Greek books enthusiasts would, would call it. Uh, sometimes a millennium before they, they even lived. So um, I'd say that, that's probably the most important thing, be able to jump into great theological and philosophical conversations of all time. I'm looking up, uh, I just, when you were saying that, I remembered a chapter in here with uh, where Bellman quotes Luther on how everything got screwed up after the vernacular was used in the scriptures. I'll, I'll bring it up when I find it, but uh, you mentioned dead language. For people out there that don't understand what that means, what does it mean when a language is dead? Well, they already talked about uh, people that were living uh, in the, 
I'd say already by the seventh century, especially uh, the nature of uh, Latin and, and even ancient Greek being different than that of uh, other tongues. It gets more and more uh, specified as you go throughout human history. But by a dead language, basically one that because it's not uh, spoken in just a particular nation, it's not, a na let's say, a, a national, even multinational language, um, the changes that it can undergo are are greatly restricted. It's not to say that Latin doesn't, you know, you don't have to find some idiosyncrasies to medieval Latin versus patristic Latin versus the golden age Latin of Caesar and Cicero. But um, essentially what, it, what happens with the dead language is uh, it, it changes so very little that some, you know, Homer could pick up, um, what's that? Yeah, I got a, a, a set here of romances, Byzantine romances written in the 1400s, Homer could have picked them up a lot of times because they're imitating his language over and over again. He could have picked it up and, and understood it. Now, you know, if, if Homer was actually blind, then maybe someone would have had to have read it to him, but he would have understood what, uh, what's going on, okay? The pronunciation changes here and there, same way it does with Latin. You know, you've got some pronunciation idiosyncrasies, but uh, similarly, you've got people who wrote in the, the 20th century uh, who can understand Cicero as if he were, you know, their, their brother, and vice versa. Cicero could have, um, you know, if he had stepped into a so-called time machine, he could have jumped forward 2,000 years and understood exactly what they were talking about. I mean, they, they would have been having the conversation about the exact same realities, um, using mostly the exact same language, exact same nouns, verbs, you name it. And that, that's really only capable with a, a dead language. If you look at even something that was written in English 200 years ago, and well um, let's just put it this way the average uh school kid I'm not talking about a, a very very bright person the average school kid he's, he's he's tripped up a lot by reading shakespeare and sometimes even people who are writing after shakespeare you know like johnson or something it's uh gonna be a bit of a challenge uh and he's not gonna be able to have truly a conversation he'd be busy looking at the dictionary every few moments it's not the case with latin and greek um not to say you don't find examples where people you know uh, the, the exception kind of proves the rule, not to say you won't find examples where people uh, are using a, a, a sort of Latin and Greek that seems like it's being translated from a, a modern language almost simultaneously. You know, that, that can happen, but uh, all things considered, it's actually pretty rare. Uh, more people are using a, a pretty pure version of Latin and Greek throughout those 2,000 plus years of their history that, um, yeah, what they mean by dead is that you can't really change it. Once something's dead, it's a, you're not going to do anything to, for it to mutate any longer. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, and I think really Chesterton put it best when he said you, the language dies and then becomes immortal because uh, there's still a, you know, vivacious nature to it. It's still alive in a certain sense, but because of that uh, dying, it can't be, it can't suffer a substantial change to kind of use philosopher's language. Oh, there it is. Yes. Uh, yeah, on that. Uh, <clears throat> Hillary shows the comments on the Synod, which even Luther acknowledged, who called the scriptures the book of her uh, heretics on the same point proved by experience. And he goes into translation-wise, saying that the Calvinist minister, uh, minister in his own uh, uh, local tongue in England translated Ecclesiastes 25, uh, da -da -da, and says, there are many things about the evils of women. So this certain woman stood up and said, is that the word of God? Really, that was the word of the devil. And he gives a whole paragraph of mistranslations, kind of like how you're saying about the uh, non-dead part. <laughs> and uh, 
just goes into the screw-ups that you could have with the uh, languages. I brought that up just because even Luther acknowledged that uh, for they would easily fall in the date of this development. And what if people uh, did not, uh, not only do they derive any fruit from the scriptures, but also suffer some damage for they would easily fall in danger of erring both in doctrine of faith and in precepts of moral uh, life and morals for all heresies have taken their beginning from a false understanding of the scriptures as Hillary shows. And even Luther acknowledged who called the scriptures, the book of heretics and Bellman finishes at the same, and the same point is proved from his experience. Um, so that way the, if you screw up the language, you screw up the faith and doctrines and morals, which would you say is kind of seeing that now? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I would, uh, instead of focusing uh, primarily on what the heretics did and said, I, I would even add the, the names of two saints there whose um, concerns about this echo Bellarmine's, and that's um, St. Jerome, who complained about it, you know, in the late 300s, early 400s. I mean, he was just really at, at his wit's end about how to word certain things in Latin, that especially when you get to, to Hebrew. I mean, Greek and Latin are pretty much coming from the same large, large family, Indo-European uh, languages. But when you talk about a Semitic language like Hebrew and trying to render that uh, for the Old Testament or Aramaic uh, into to Latin, just really difficult. And Jerome's basically, all, all, you could say the great majority of his letters and most of his commentaries mentioned his frustration about trying to translate you know, even, even Greek, but especially Hebrew and Latin, but not just him. You've got, um, well, let's say 1400 years after Jerome, you've got St. Therese of Lisieux who says, um, you know, uh, if, if I had been a priest, I, I would have certainly studied Hebrew and Greek uh, so as to have known, you know, basically what the uh, original language, what the, the scriptures have there originally, because she complains in her uh, story of a soul of the, the differing French translations in her day, uh, and how it just, it, it really caused her a lot of um, consternation, a lot of, a lot of I guess you would say, spiritual stress uh, to figure out what was going on, especially in the Gospels, her beloved Gospels. So even with the Gospels, which are pretty straightforward because you got four different accounts that are overlapping over the same different realities that happen, and it, it bothered her to no end to the, um, you know, we say the final years of her life that there were discrepancies in the in the various French translations. That's in the 1800s. You know, it's it's gotten a whole lot worse in French and uh, especially in English uh, since her time. But um, yeah, so there, there's a, a real sense in which uh, those those differing translations cause even the saints. Uh, so I, best way I can think to put it is kind of some spiritual stress. Like how do I how do I see through this. Augustine for uh, Bellarmine brings him up a lot. We're solving a lot of those uh, difficulties. So, um, you know, St. Augustine says, well, here's how we can understand two different things being said here. And, you know, that because there were lots of, uh, the other thing that you've got to be careful with when talking about St. Augustine's, there were loads of Latin translations that existed in his day. And he complains, St. Augustine complains about that, you know, um, the old Latin versus what he calls the Vulgate Latin, not exactly the uh, the translation that uh, St. Jerome put out, but, you know, he, he's got the frustration in his own day of trying to render um, the, the Latin intelligible, you know? I think I remember uh, <laughs> we were talking in the, the car one day about, is it Diane Mertzer? Oh, yeah, Moscar, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moscar, and uh, yeah. I th you brought it up, because I, I remember I brought up one point, and then you brought this point, I think it was, and you brought up how she was lamenting about the language being uh, 
what was it? The Protestants killed the church fathers because you had to kill Catholicism that way, but the moderns killed the, the language of the church, and that's how you kill a society or a civilization. Was that about this topic? So, something to that effect, yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm, which is kind of funny. I'm reading from a translation of a Latin, a Latinist, and you know, our boy Brian is translating moral theology of Alphonsus to. I'll sit at the. I'll sit at these groups and the or the festivals or or uh, uh, conferences and say, "Hey, yeah, you know, you ever heard of this guy Alphonsus? You ever heard of Pio and John Vianney?" He said, "Yeah, they use this book." And how many priests can read from this book? And it's a you know a salvation issue. Uh, no. So you put up these videos on YouTube, uh, I don't know, about six or eight on Latin and Greek. Uh, is what was, well, we'll just go, what was the purpose? What was your thought process? And because people were asking uh, for English translations, and I remember somebody coming up to me because I was trying to learn Spanish, and they said the best way to do it is listen to Spanish sermons or videos or TV and just immerse in it. Was that kind of the idea you were going with? Yes. Um, I mean, not kind of a uh, headless uh, immersion where you're not, there's no end in sight, no goal in sight, no um, reasonable progression. But um, to give you the, probably the best example um, is this book right here is Familia Romana. It's part of the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Latin language explained or illustrated by itself. Um, it's, it's a book that lays out Latin entirely in Latin but in intelligible bits, all right, and it starts from the foundations without which you can't make any progress in the language, and adds, you know, a, a, a serious grammatical concept and some vocabulary every single chapter for 35 chapters in the first book, and it does that with a, a second volume as well. Um, so the idea is that uh, you get used to hearing, responding, reading, and then writing in a particular language. You, you, I mean, it's what we call basically immersion, but that's the only way to really, uh, as the ancients said, let it get into your, your blood and marrow, all right, where you can really say, I know this language because I, I mean, I, I can express abstract concept, concepts, I can express emotions, I mean, because we are uh, creatures that uh, have to deal with emotions perpetually, I, I can express all this in a particular language, and that's because, you know, I've had the the, the patience and the, and that means suffering, you know, it comes from the Latin word to suffer. I've had the patience and the perseverance to sit there and work with this beast, you know, uh, fight with it over and over again, day after day, hour after hour. Um, and it's, it's, it's a battle. I mean, it really is a battle because, you know, you're battering, batter, battling your own tendency to, to want ease in things and uh, to have stuff that comes quickly to you and, Learning Latin and learning Greek, those are not easy things, but the, what, what I'm trying to get across in these videos is that there's an easier way to go about it, and that's, that's the immersion method. That's just to, you're not going to pick up everything on the first read, and that's the way serious, all serious subjects are. So anything in theology, anything in philosophy, uh, sorry, you're not going to understand the Summa of St. Thomas, e either of his Summa, Summa Contra Gentiles or Summa Theologiae, on first reading. You know, you have to read it over and over. You have to sit there, maybe pause your reading as you might pause a video and, and think about something. What does he mean by that? I'm not, even if you're reading it in a translation, you know. Um, and so it's that same way with languages. Uh, one benefit, I think, to learning the ancient languages with the, the way I'm presenting it here on these videos is that you can actually pause 
you know. You can't do that in an immersion, Spanish class, immersion, Italian, French class, things like that. You really have to, uh, there's going to be a little bit more uh, pati, a little bit more suffering involved in the patients. Um, whereas, you know, with, with some that's right. That's right. So, you know, th this way, at least uh, if you feel like it's um, too much, even psychologically, it's like, oh, information overload. There's always a pause button, you know. And so on take, that, take, what take do you think about the Duolingo thing? Um. I've got my own frustrations with that because the um, the creators had a uh, a serious uh, political agenda and have not been uh, afraid to express that on Twitter. Uh, both well, both creators of Duolingo, but uh, I, I think it's not to say that it hasn't helped some people make some progress in language, uh, several different languages. I've used it for German before because I've had a hard time just sitting down and being patient with German. Uh, so not to say that it can't help. Um, and not to say for certain personality types, it might not be a, a decent way to learn a language, but uh, it seems to me that given all the best studies ever done on language learning, it is, it's not the most uh, effective way, all right? And I use that to avoid the word efficient, but you, you even use the word efficient. It's not the, it's not the best way for the overwhelming majority of the population to learn a language, to automatically go into translate mode from day one, and to basically never really entirely graduate from that. I mean, as you progress in Duolingo, at least as I did with German, you know, you get to like levels nine, 10, 11, you're doing a lot more in the target language, but um, it's a vice to want to fall back on the crutch of your mother tongue every single time. Not to say it's not helpful to have that, but the way the ancients saw it is being able to render something eloquently in your mother tongue from the, the foreign language you're learning right then, that's actually something that's saved for way, way later down the, the process of language learning. Um, and and it, that was the, the method that the Jesuits always used too. You, you don't do uh, beautiful translations into a vernacular language of Latin or Greek for the Jesuits and their, um, their description of things in the Ratio Studiorum until much, much later on in your studies. Because that means you have to know the language very, very well that you're that the foreign language, and you have to know your own mother tongue very well. That's a whole other issue now. Is how many English speakers really know their own tongue very well? But you know, uh, yeah. So there, there, there's that to deal with. Is that um, most of the studies out there that have ever been there are serious studies about language learning suggest it's this is the best way to go about it is to try to stick to the the target language for as long as possible, and um, yeah. It's it's the most effective way to make progress. Yeah, I remember, I remember my brother, now father, talked about his first year of seminary. Called me up, said, "We don't even know the English language because he was having to think English again." You probably knew that. And uh, now I remember uh, seeing an EWTM video. You were at a uh, Latin immersion thing. I was in Wisconsin. Did they do they do they they still do that in Wisconsin? The Latin immersion. But I, uh, so I lost it for just a second there. Oh, I was saying is, uh, uh, I remember an EWTM video that uh, you were in wasn't there. It's Jonathan Harrington at the Spain, but it was a Latin immersion class, uh, weekend. Uh, I think Wisconsin, do they still do that up there? Uh, okay, so they had this, uh, it called the Family of St. Jerome, the Familia yes. Sancti Hieronymi. They had that, they've had it in various states. Uh, it used to be most frequently in Florida. Where the group got started right outside of clear well in Clearwater actually yeah they, they still do that there are uh, several other groups that are doing um, 
other other things that are, that are ways of teaching people that the, the familia's uh, chinaculum kind of a get together uh, was meant more of just kind of a recreational time in in Latin, but there are other groups that focus on teaching it that way. So those, those things are just multiplying by the by the year. I mean, you've got probably uh, another 50% of them every single year for the last 15 years or so. So that they've really grown by leaps and bounds last decade or so. A sad thing is that um, a, a, not, the, not the family of St. Jerome, but a lot of these uh, living Latin, living Greek groups have been uh, overtaken by uh, ideologies that are diametrically opposed to the Catholic faith. So that's, that's a sad thing is that um, it wasn't quite that way when I started out with things in the early 2000s, but um, it's become more and more pronounced. And I'd say the last few years, it's gotten intolerable. Seriously, so. not everything's like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, Jonathan, uh, what, do you have a website that you're teaching people at? I remember, I know you said you did the uh, Carmelites yesterday. And uh, uh, by the way, folks, uh, we lost the connection. We're just using the audio right now. Sorry. So you get to deal with my pretty face. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> Jonathan mentioned suffering. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so uh, do you have a website that you're teaching regular Joes uh, or, uh, uh, yeah, or how's that, go how's that go about? Well, yeah, the plan for the future is to um, basically arrange some times well, we have, but it, it, it's best to, to teach language, I, I think, not just one-on-one, but having a few extra people in the class, some, somewhere five and ten is an optimal number. So, yes, I have a website, it's Domum, and it's, um, I don't recommend that anyone go watch Life of Brian or anything, Monty Python, not uh, <laughs> as a moral uh, issue, but there is that hilarious thing you can find on uh, a YouTube clip of um, one of the, the Brits who's writing, uh, try, trying to tell the Romans to go home, you know, and uh, <laughs> ends up butchering the Latin. So I just, I, I did take the correct part of that, E.K. Domo, go home. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, to create a website where I'm going to start uh, clarifying some different, you know, times and levels of Latin and Greek. And, um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that'll be the way forward. Didn't, you know, get this started in this school year, but uh, if I get things ready for after Christmas, I think that'll be good. To, you know, kind of a second semester sort of thing. Uh, teach groups of folks who want to start from scratch. Teach those who want to start who already have a little bit of knowledge of Latin or Greek, even one, and yeah, go from there. So it's a uh, it's a a wit thing that I've done right now. It's uh, don't have the money to have a nice website yet, but I'm going with uh, just a Wix thing. It's Ite Domum. Uh, and if you, I think if you, you know, were to do a search of my name, E.K. Domum and Wix, it, it should be popping up there for you. I'll make it easy too. I'll just link everything in the description section below. So underneath, you click the little box underneath the video, or if you listen to one MP3, just go to the YouTube channel. Uh, you'll see the links underneath the video for what we talked about, the EWTN uh, immersion class weekend will be on there his website. Uh, I'll even try to find a clip for him with, uh, from Monty Python. What the, why not? And <laughs> uh, what's the, uh, what's the cost for things like that? Do they, do we just have the people just contact you or what's the best way to contact you through the website or email or what? Yeah, through, through the website. And what I'm going to aim to do is um, also to kind of encourage people to spread the word is the more people I can up to 
a certain level because I don't have much more than 10 per class. But the more people I get signed up, uh, the less the cost of the class will be and just, you know, make it more affordable to people as they talk to their friends, say, hey, you want to try some Latin? Um, and then do it in, maybe start out with uh, kind of quarters instead of semesters so that people can really judge whether or not they're, they're benefiting from it. And if they are, you know, if they enthusiasm there after a, I'd say nine weeks or so of study, and let's just bump it up and do, you know, finish out a semester and do it that way. So it's kind of something uh, that, that one can make the commitment right off the bat and then also evaluate about midway through a semester and see is this, is this as good as he said it was going to be for me. And I learned as much as he said I would based on the amount of study that I'm putting into it. Because that's, that's obviously the other thing you can't get by without doing some study on your own. And just to give uh, you people a background, how many years you've been doing this? I mean, it's not like you just picked it up over a week and say, hey, let me teach Latin. No. So I, um, I started studying Greek my sophomore year in college right after I converted to Catholicism. And uh, that, was, that was back in the early 2000s. And at the same time, uh, I guess this is my – if I had a claim to fame, this might be it. I decided to start trying to learn Latin on my own. And actually, I think made a whole lot more progress in Latin more quickly and easily than I did with Greek. So um, I've never actually been in someone else's class of Latin. I've taught um, consistently since 2003, taught Latin to others, but have never actually been in a Latin class myself, really. So, um, yeah, I just I, I learned it the way that I, I teach it. And um, I, I, I think I ironed out a few uh, difficult spots, uh, some wrinkles along the way, and um, yeah, I've gotten to where I can, I think, uh, help others uh, basically learn it or help themselves learn the language because really a lot of it has to do with how much we want to pour into it. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been teaching both languages about the last 16 years and really enjoyed it. I had my primary jobs with the uh, seminary there for the Archdiocese and Seminary in Denver, but I really enjoy teaching Latin and Greek. It's a, it's a passion and it gives people access to the Great medieval, uh, medieval scholastics, even some of the Greek scholastics, which a few people know about, and uh, the church fathers, Greek and Latin church fathers, and then obviously the uh, different commentaries on sacred scripture and sacred scripture itself. And you know, I'm a happy man knowing that I've, I've turned people towards those great things. Oh, very good. Well, hey, Jonathan, I appreciate your time. Uh, you back to the family. Tell them all I, I said hi, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. And uh, Hopefully, we'll get some people to go over there and uh, start learning some Greek and Latin. And uh, if you you know, post more videos whenever you want. Just let me know so I can get the right photo up. I had a lot of people claiming, uh, "Hey, this is terrible. This is Greek. This isn't Latin." When you were uploading, I was at a conference all weekend. Like, guys, I'm just letting me know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll figure out some, something funny as a way to describe whether it's Latin or Greek. <laughs> I appreciate danger, maybe even a heretic. <laughs> I appreciate your time, bud. All right. God bless. You too. Thanks. All right. Well, appreciate you guys hanging out for this, for this um, Why Latin, Why Learn Latin, Why Learn Greek. Uh, hopefully we'll do more of these uh, interviews type say, kind of the evolution of Census Fidelium, the channel and the website. But just remember to check out www.censusfidelium.us and the corresponding YouTube channel as always. And if you want to support us, if you know where it is, it's the .us, donations, we got the PayPal, Patreon, Stripe, Stripe, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, more videos coming out soon. And, uh, yeah, if you have any ideas, shoot them our way. We'd love to hear from you. God bless and Mary keep you.